0: Good startups are chaotic, but not in the everyone's running around screaming because your website broke because thousands of users are trying to sign up at the same time and you and your college buddies now have to stay up all night to fix it somehow. That is a movie, a good one, but it's not a thing that ever actually happens in real life. Good startups are chaotic in the way that the human mind categorizes and organizes the world. Everything new has a life cycle with three phases. First is chaos. Second is organization. And third is clarity and order. I think about the three phases like a treasure hunt. Chaos is where you're looking at a partial map like your Indiana Jones, wading through swamps and breaking into temples and wooing random good-looking women you went to university with who, for some reason, now own a local bar in the middle of the jungle. There are alligators and snakes in real danger, and eventually you hopefully find something that might be interesting. Chaos is where asymmetric gains live. You find something that matters and you bring it out of the jungle and it makes an enormous impact. This is what you want in your startup and in your life. Get it right, even once or twice over 40 years and your life will be fundamentally changed. Organization, the next category, comes after Indiana Jones discovers the gold tablet and transports it back to England. In this category, you're the scientist cleaning off the mud and the muck, better understanding what you've got and how it can be useful and to who, what it's worth. Organization is where iterative gains live. You pick something someone else discovered and do the operational side a bit better. This stage is fine, but again, it's iterative. You're looking at small returns, 1.2x versus 10x or 100x potential if you start in the chaos bucket. Lots of people confuse the two stages and expect asymmetric gains by organizing, and that is never going to happen. Setting up shop in the organizational world is tempting because it seems like it's less risky and humans think that that's a good predictor for the things we want. It isn't, but we'll get into that. Finally, the clarity and order stage is when you've cleaned that gold tablet and shipped it out and it's been reproduced and optimized to high hell and everyone recognizes its value and has squeezed every last cent from it. Think about this stage like the cereal aisle at the grocery store. The other day, I saw a couple arguing about whether they should get regular size shredded wheat or that hilariously large shredded wheat where you get like five bricks per box and you can only fit one in your bowl and it just sits in your milk like a cruise ship. Clarity and order is a massive chunk of our world, where the decisions being made don't really matter and are just there to pass the time and make us feel like we've got some control. We argue over which cereal is better when, if you zoom out even a tiny bit, practically they're all the same. There's no value here for you or for your customer. Your best and worst case scenario is treading water. The floor is low and so is the ceiling. Most people spend most of their time in that last bucket. Here is how the categories look in real life. My friend has a nephew who's 22. He's decided that he's going to start a business drop shipping cheap sunglasses from China for slightly less cheap on his website. He'll do ads on Facebook and Instagram, have a TikTok page, try and get some influencers to wear them or become an influencer himself, all of that. Anyone over 35 whose eyes just rolled so far back in their heads that they came all the way around to the normal position, I promise you two were once 22. He's up. This drop shipping idea might seem unique or risky to the 22-year-old solely because maybe his friends aren't doing it, but this opportunity clearly lives in that third clarity and order bucket. What he's trying to do was figured out years ago, or really decades ago. There's a playbook for this exact type of drop shipping. There's no Indiana Jones wading through muck. There's just you picking some vendors online and making a landing page on Squarespace then hiring someone off of Fiverr to make some ads. You never have to leave your couch. That is a shredded wheat decision, and it'll have all the upside of you choosing the giant ones over the small ones, aka none. So his business won't work, and that's fine. He's 22. He'll learn some stuff. He'll bounce back. But the broader point is that we tend to confuse which stage we're in which means we confuse the type of return we can possibly get and, most of all, the opportunities we spend our time on. When my friend asked his nephew why he chose to sell sunglasses, he said he wanted to do something that had been, quote, de-risked. He was making sure he wasn't going to lose money. The fact that there was already a flow to get the glasses and ship them and sell them meant that it was, quote, impossible for him to lose money. It was a side hustle with only upside. Except that there's no upside, and he will lose his money. All of it. Fear disguises itself as something practical or de-risked all the time. You're afraid to do the thing that might actually work because that's scary, so you do the quote practical thing instead that's guaranteed not to work. Here's the golden rule. If the first steps of a thing you're pursuing aren't painful, the reward at the end isn't going to be worth much. Back in the day, when you needed to go to China to figure out manufacturers and logistics, and you had to build a site for drop shipping, there was probably value. That stuff was painful. But once those paths are forged and easy to travel, the reward at the end will be diluted to nothing. There's a talk I absolutely love that I'll link to in the show notes that's part of the last lecture series at Stanford B School. The speaker is Graham Weaver, and he starts off by talking about a misunderstanding he used to have about investing early in his career when he ran a private equity shop. He says he used to think that there were two rules. Rule one, don't lose money. Rule two, never forget rule one. He talks about how three times in the existence of his fund, he wrote a memo to investors saying it was, quote, mathematically impossible for him to lose money on their new investment because of their hedging strategy he lost money each time. There's a sentiment in here that I agree with deeply. Whenever you set out with the sole purpose of ensuring one risky thing isn't going to happen, you all but guarantee that thing is going to happen, if not directly, like the unsinkable Titanic immediately sinking, then indirectly. The rom-com industry has taught us this time and time again, In a span of eight glorious months in 2005, we got both No Strings Attached and Friends with Benefits, one with Ashton Kutcher and Natalie Portman and one with Mila Kunis and Justin Timberlake. I don't remember which was which, and I'm not going to check, but they were both about the same thing. Two couples who decided they'd just do the sexual part with the sole purpose of not falling in love. I'll give you one guess what happened. The examples of this are endless and not limited to rom-coms. But staying in the romantic world, if you join a dating app with the sole purpose of not getting your heart broken, I've got bad news for you. In college, I had a wonky ankle, so the head trainer for our basketball team would tape the hell out of it, immobilizing it in basically a papier-mâché cast before every game. It physically can't twist, he'd say. There's absolutely no way you'll injure it during the game. Instead, my ankle broke stepping off the team bus after our last game of the season because it was so weak from being immobilized for so long. The Prevent defense is a terrible strategy in life, and most importantly, it removes the chance for the one thing that'll really make a dent in your life, asymmetric growth. If you're only worried about the downside, you'll never focus on the upside. At some point, we became a society of de-riskers, consumed by managing and removing the worst-case scenario at every turn. I have a theory as to why this happened, but for today, all you need to know is that focusing on avoiding risk is a horrible strategy for actually avoiding the worst case scenario, and it removes the best case scenario. Back to the three stages of something new. Everything magical in life resides hidden deep in that chaos stage, waiting for you to find it. In that stage, it's unclear if what you're doing will work. If it were clear, the market would have built it already. Capitalism is efficient, and the odds are still low. But again, you only need to pull off one or two things that do work in your lifetime to fundamentally change your life. The long-term payoff for spending lots of time in the chaos bucket is astronomical. But chaos is uncomfortable for humans, so we avoid it, or most of us do. Some determined entrepreneurs summon up all of their courage to go after something new, frantically trying to move from the chaos stage to the organizational stage as fast as possible, like a kid trying to make it the full length of the pool in one breath. Sometimes this works. Others try to build systems to make chaos less chaotic, which as someone who loves systems, I applaud and have tried. But chaos can't be roped into a system. That's the point. This is incrementally helpful, but only just. But there's one smaller group. I've only had a handful of these people at Tacklebox over the years and met a few others in other walks of life. These people love chaos. They live for it. And they churn out unique, incredible stuff. The question is how? That's what we're going to talk about today, with a little help from Harry Potter, an anesthesiologist, and a squirt gun. And we'll do it after a little smooth jazz. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at GetTackleBox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas to our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at GetTackleBox.com. Back to it. The Scarcity Mindset. If you're a regular listener, you've probably heard me talk about Harry Potter. The reason is that I'm always reading them. It's a stress release tactic for me. And by always reading, I mean sometimes I'll go eight months without reading any Harry Potter, but sometimes my wife is eight months pregnant and I read three books in a week. For whatever reason, it's calming. So I'm always kind of running through the books in the background on my Kindle. This is relevant today because of something I realized the later books are so, so, so much better written than the earlier ones. They're technically better written, but they're also far better structured, and the leaps and twists are significantly more creative. That's not just me, by the way. Critics all say this, too. So the question is why. I'd imagine J.K. Rowling got better at writing and got better editors, sure. But I bet a big reason is a thing called the scarcity mindset. Dan Ariely describes scarcity mindset as a reduction of freely available mental resources because they're being involuntarily used for another task. Basically, when you're stressed, you're much dumber than when you aren't. This is worth serious attention. In his book, Misbelief, Ariely cites a study on sugarcane farmers in India. These farmers experience dramatically different financial conditions at different stages of their crop growing cycle. During some months, cash is relatively plentiful. During others, they're stretched extremely thin. So the research team used exercises designed to measure two key cognitive capacities known as fluid intelligence and executive control to see if they changed with the financial conditions. The results were striking. Pre-harvest, when cash was tight, farmers scored 25% lower on intelligence and reasoning tests and were 10% slower in executive control and made 15% more mistakes. These were the same people, just at different stages of their financial ebb and flow. There are countless other studies, I'll link to a few in the show notes, that show creativity and critical thinking are seriously hampered as stressors, financial and other, arise. Your stressed mind pulls your thinking away from creative problem solving. During the early books, J.K. Rowling was famously poor, scribbling on napkins and bars, presumably incredibly stressed. During the newer books, I'd bet J.K. Rowling was more at ease. She had the bandwidth to be more creative, and her writing dramatically improved. If you're building a startup where you start in the chaos stage, trying to figure out who the customers who feel pain are, how you can reach them, how you might better solve their problem, trying to discover first principles and reverse architect them in a way that gives you a systemic advantage, testing things like price while trying to get other people to join you, you'll constantly face setbacks that are objectively stressful. Each day you devote resources to the search phase without a firm result makes you second guess how you're spending your time. External pressure will build as you spend more and more time exploring, which is exactly what your startup needs, but exactly what your mind won't be able to handle. It'll constrict under the weight of the scarcity constraint. It'll try to push you out of the chaos stage, whether you're ready to leave or not. It'll dumb down your strategy and pull you to be less risky. So we reach the crucial point. The time we spend in the chaos stage directly correlates to asymmetric success, but Chaos is stressful and our cognitive abilities are impacted while we're in it. So we don't want to stay. And if we do, we won't think clearly. So now what? What do we do? Well, we need to speak with a top anesthesiologist who also happens to be one of my closest childhood friends. How to reframe chaos as opportunity. Early on in Tacklebox, we had a founder working on CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. We've had a number of founders work on businesses in this space since, with a bunch finding success. Probably the most successful is called More Good Days, a CBT solution that helps people with fibromyalgia to great results. Anyway, this first founder was talking about how important reframing is, how reactions are choices and they can be changed with practice. This founder was helping people with chronic pain, and when the stimulus of the pain arose, she taught them to change the response. Her hypothesis was that pain had emotional and cognitive aspects and reframing it could work. It did really well. Even with this success, I was somewhat skeptical until I went to Australia with one of my best friends, the anesthesiologist. He's also one of the most successful and well-rounded and happy people that I know. One of the first days of the trip, we were on a hike and he was taking a picture and his phone slipped out of his hand. It tumbled down the side of a cliff. You really don't want to lose your phone on an international trip. But when I looked at him, his eyes lit up. Ha! He yelled. Well, this'll be fun. He ended up buying a string of disposable cameras that let us take underwater shots while we were surfing. He talked about how great it was that he'd been forced to truly disconnect. And he asked locals for tips and directions, making friends across the country. He never once complained about the phone or even mentioned it again. I'll get it sorted out when I'm home, he said the one time I asked. This past April, he and I signed up for a 100-mile bike ride in Long Island. Two days before, it became clear that there were going to be 2-3 to three inches of rain the day of. I assumed the ride would be canceled, and if it wasn't, we certainly weren't going to go. Until the text came through. We aren't going to forget this one, buddy! With an exclamation point. Then he said, This is our chance for a Mizogi. And he linked to the meaning of the word mizogi, a Japanese notion around doing something one time a year that is so hard and impacts the other 364 days of your year. It's supposed to be something you look back on to show that you're strong and capable, that you can do hard things. As we rode 100 miles in torrential downpour with 30 mile per hour gusts and 40 degree temperatures, he was constantly talking about how great it'd feel when we looked back on this in a few weeks. At mile 70 or so, I asked if his legs hurt, and he looked at me and said, quote, doesn't really matter, does it? Then smiled and kept on pedaling. My friend, when he lost his phone, was still creative, thinking up the cameras and the other ways to replace the phone while enhancing the trip. Because while he was hit with a stressful situation, he didn't frame it that way. In fact, his response was, I mean, it's not going to kill me, so what's the big deal? As an anesthesiologist, he tells me that I could do his job 98% of the time, but the other 2% take a decade or two of experience to handle, and those are the only times that matter. They're life or death, he says. So, he works incredibly hard to calm himself for those moments, to be creative and thoughtful and confident under enormous stress. It carries over to the rest of his life. Our best founders have the same mindset, and it is in no way natural. Natural. They work extremely hard at it. I spoke with one very successful founder a year after they left Tacklebox and asked what they thought was their most important trait that helped them have this level of success. They responded, probably the paradigm shift. I asked what they meant. Every day, she said, my to-do list is long and unrealistic and hard. I won't get to everything and my big stated goal, where I want the company to go, needs so many things to go right to actually happen. I used to look at this all and get stressed and then, as a reaction, try to pick the easiest things and just knock them out to feel better. My business didn't get anywhere and my stress didn't chill out, but now I reframe everything. Startups are stressful. That's a characteristic I can't change. You can wish the ocean wasn't wet all you want, but it is. So, that aside, I now see everything as an opportunity to make big strides I look at my to-do list and I pick the stuff that's the hardest and will have the biggest impact if it works. If I'm going to be in this uncomfortable place, let me attack the stuff that'll help me get out of it fastest. There's nothing better than achieving hard things, so I seek them out and force myself to feel excited about them. And because I've done this a lot, now I genuinely do. Reframing is about turning things that sap your energy into strengths. I'll give you one more example because I've been trying to figure out a way to get this into the pod and I don't see a better chance. We were in Florida with the little guy a few weeks back and we ate out at a restaurant on the beach. We weren't there five minutes before the crows swarmed with one plucking a chip with guac on it right out of my wife's hand. It was miserable eating lunch with 30 crows staring at you, plotting their attack, and the little guy picked up on it. He was sobbing, clearly shook. Then the waitress came by and said, oh good, they're around today. Here, have some fun, and she plopped a squirt gun right next to my plate. I spent the next 15 minutes trying to drill the crows with water to keep them away, which worked, was absurdly fun, and got me cheers from all the other tables. Reframe weakness into strengths creatively. The magic comes later. We started with Indiana Jones and we'll end with him too. The hardest part about this whole chaos stage is acknowledging that you don't actually know what you're looking for, that the magic comes later. Indy knew he was looking for that gold tablet, but you don't, which is why I'll say again, the thing that I've been saying to founders a ton lately, the magic comes later. I might actually just put it on a sign and put it behind my desk so during Zoom calls I can just point to it when founders are frustrated. Chaos is so uncomfortable because our expectations around how startups go is so off. Lots of potential entrepreneurs think they're going to have an idea somehow. Something magical is just going to come to them. They'll be walking down the street, see someone in tights and just scream, spanks. Then the rest of the story is executing on that, amplifying that first instinct, that moment of magic. This couldn't be further from how businesses actually work. You probably start with an idea, sure. And you think it's the Spanx type, but the second you start thrashing, speaking with people, understanding their actual motivator, seeing how they frame the problem, seeing how they get promoted, how they view themselves, that first idea is going to fall apart. Whatever you start with won't survive 10 minutes in the chaotic stage if you're doing it right. But that's fine. Chaos isn't a confirmation bias machine. It's a way to learn and a way to weed out people who can't handle it. As you thrash, you'll get new ideas on things that might work, and then you'll learn more and decide if it's worth continuing to pull on that thread or to move to a thread a few feet over. There are no guarantees or timelines. That's why it's called the chaos stage. The longer you're willing to stay, the more potentially asymmetric stuff you're going to come up with. Here's what it might look like Maybe you have an idea in a market you've never worked in before. Reframe that as an opportunity to build a learning machine, to meet experts and speak to customers and productize it on your side so you can do it over and over, to do things other founders can't or won't, to seek out the things that are painful at first. Maybe no one is answering your cold emails. Fantastic. You need to figure out something of value you can give them. You need to find a place to meet them in person or a trusted place they hang out online. This is also painful, but everything valuable starts that way. And once it's done, you'll have learned invaluable customer acquisition channels. This is a massive opportunity. It's business changing. Maybe you're stressed and don't know what to do. Great. Pretend that you're now the owner of the business and you've hired a CEO to execute on it. What is your big vision and how would you delegate that to them to go out and prove it? Then can you just do the things you would have delegated? This is also an opportunity to draft out your big vision, to tell the story you'd like to see come true. Optimize for the uncomfortable, chaotic stuff, but reframe it in your mind as the biggest opportunity of your life because that's what it is. The more time you're able to spend in the chaos stage, the more likely you are to build something that changes your life. And I was kidding earlier. Of course I know that Ashton and Natalie were no strings attached and Justin and Mila were Friends with Benefits. I also know Friends with Benefits was the better movie because Mila Kunis absolutely crushed it. And I also know that Mila and Ashton were in different movies, but were apparently doing the whole Friends with Benefits thing while those movies were being filmed, and now they're married. Most things you work hard to avoid, you actually make inevitable. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you have a startup idea and a full-time job, head to gettacklebox.com and apply. We'll get back to you in 72 hours. You can be working on your idea by the weekend. Have a great week.